on. There we go. I couldn't decide, coffee or water, so I have both for me this morning. Anybody else in that boat? No. <laughs> I have something that I want to show you as a mom that I tend to lug around with me, and so it's back here. If I can find it, there it is. Technical difficulties, just one second. Can you tell how inconvenient this is to like totally lug this thing around with you? Okay. There we go. That's a little bit better. All right. Say hello to my friend, the wagon. Hi, wagon. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I'm like breathing into this. This is my first time. Please have grace with me. <laughs> um, I have this wagon because um, when I became a mom, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Can anybody relate to that? <laughs> and so I have this wagon full of stuff that I tend to carry with me as my resource guide to being a mom. But the thing about lugging this wagon around is that it's inconvenient and it's heavy and it gets really annoying to do that. But the biggest thing is that the more stuff I add to it, the heavier and the heavier it tends to become. And when I have a heavy load to carry or push or pull with me, it becomes really difficult for me to trust God. And so here's the thing, is that it's the most precious thing. It's my kids that I'm having to trust God with and that I'm pulling this wagon for. Trusting God has been a really difficult journey for me when it comes to my kids. And believe it or not, it's taken me a few years to actually have the epiphany that maybe God did have some insight into this thing called parenting. Um, I'm sure you've seen my kids and me running around, or a mom and any kids running around, and I can guarantee you that that mom is hoping that you think she has any idea what she's doing as she's chasing them and trying to get control of them, running up into the sanctuary and playing on the drums, or running through the library and causing a code F and the doors close and everybody's locked in and everyone's looking at you like, way to go, mom. Um, so I can tell you for certain that I usually don't have any idea what I'm doing. All right. So if we could go to the next slide, please. This is a picture of me when I became a mom. That is little Rocco who is going into kindergarten this year. I love this picture because you can really tell by the look on our faces that we both have no idea what we have gotten ourselves into. But the beautiful thing about that picture is that in that moment, I was so thankful to have him. I was so full of joy. I was excited and I'm totally kidding. The only thing that I was thinking in that picture was that I was exhausted and I had no idea what I was doing and I didn't think I was ever going to sleep again. 
The other thing with that picture is I was really upset that my husband had decided that that would be a perfect moment to take a picture. And I promptly let him know that I was very upset that he had taken that picture. And so here I am, a new mom. And all the things that are going through my head is that I don't know what I'm doing. And all the things that nobody ever told me, right? Nobody ever told me that I would become a mom bee. How many of you know what a mom bee is? No one. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> and so a mom bee is somebody, and I'm sure that all of you parents can relate, it's somebody who is completely exhausted beyond the brink, but they will stay up just so they can have a few moments to themselves. A mom bee is somebody whose diet consists of Starbucks coffee, organic cheddar rockets from Trader Joe's because organic makes everybody feel better, lots of chocolate, and anything that you pick up after your kids that may have been on the table or the floor, and that was your meal for the day. She has long hair specifically not because she wants it to look nice, but so she can put it in a top knot, which is that lovely bun you see a lot of moms wear on their heads. Um, so it's out of her face. And her entire wardrobe consists of yoga pants. Not because she does yoga. I can guarantee you that. She's not doing yoga. But it helps her to be able to chase her kids around the store, the doctor's office, the park, anywhere that she takes them. And they're comfortable, they're flexible, so that you can move in weird situations to make sure your kid's not falling off the slide or the couch or the counter that they just climbed on top of. But most importantly, it's because probably nothing else in her wardrobe fits her anymore. And so this has become her entire existence. Most importantly, a mom bee usually is so overwhelmed and feels so ill-equipped and so scared about what she's doing that it causes a lot of fear and anxiety within her. She thinks that she is the absolute worst mother that is, has ever existed, except maybe for that mom she saw on Facebook. Um, I, have an, I, I have a hypothesis, and that hypothesis is that sin has caused women specifically to have this issue of control because we have a lot of fear. And so if we look at Genesis 3.16, it tells us, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And so with that hypothesis, um, when we look at that, we have two things that are connected, right? A woman can't have children without a mate, and so you have two things together. And both of them, seemingly after sin entered the world, have caused something different in the woman. And so a lot of commentators will say that this specifically only has to deal with the intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. And that may be very well true, but I also think it has to do with that fear and that control and that anxiety. Because that desire to control greatly increased after I got married and after I had kids. I wanted to control everything and everyone that was in my household. Um, 
play into the fact that I was born in a generation that has the entire world on her phone, right? I can Google anything on my phone. My kid has a rash. Oh, my gosh, he's dying. Um, you know, I have, my kid throws a tantrum. He must have a psychological diagnosis, right? Everything is Googled on my phone, and it's either they're totally fine or there's something drastically wrong. And unfortunately, I don't have prior generations influencing me and giving me wisdom as to how to do this thing called being a mom and being a parent. So I'm out there all by myself, swimming in a sea of information, as you can see by my wagon, and I'm searching, and I'm full of anxiety, and I'm full of fear, and the cycle just continues and continues and continues. Then I log on to social media, and all of my friends are showing me how great their life is, right? Here's us on this dream vacation. Here's this perfect kitchen table craft that I did with my kids for Christmas. Here's how wonderful my kids are with all of their certificates and gold stars at school. And what am I seeing? I'm in my car, in my yoga pants, with my top knot, picking up Kentucky Fried Chicken with three kids in the backseat that won't listen to me, that are screaming, and I feel like a complete failure. So I will continue to withdraw into myself, and I'll continue to try to make myself feel better, and I'll continue to try to ease that fear that I have that I'm going to screw up these precious little kids by trying to control them. So it's no wonder that one out of three moms in my generation are taking some form of antipsychotic medication. Um, and if they're not taking medication such as anti-anxiety or antidepressants, they're using marijuana, methamphetamine, and a very drastic uptick in heroin and pain medication. So it's a very scary place to be. Next slide, please. So what does one do to stop this cycle of fear? What do we do? Trust God. Excellent answer. <laughs> um, I can tell you that the answer isn't here in my wagon. It's not in a therapist's office. It's not in medication. It's not on a blog. It's not on social media. It's not on anything that we, as our generation, has been looking to. And all of those things can be resources. All of those things can be tools to help us. But the answer is right here. It is right here in God's word. With an abundance of wisdom to tell us what we need to do to be parents. And so I want to spend some time with you this morning getting to know a mom in the Bible who had a lot of fear. She had a lot of anxiety. And she had a really good reason to have that fear and anxiety. Her son was a person that most of us know pretty well, Moses. And so if you would please join me in Exodus chapter 2 on your phones or in your uh, Bibles if you brought them. Or I'm sorry, we're actually going to start in Exodus 1. It's just one page over, so it's okay. I promise. All right. So, we're going to read a good chunk of scripture here, but before I read that to you, I just want to set the stage for you. 
So when we're coming into Exodus, we're coming out of Joseph's story, right? And Joseph was a son of Jacob, and he had just been reconciled to his family, okay? Most of us know the story, but Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and through a long journey of years and years and years of hardships and horrific things that none of us would want to happen to us, Joseph still trusted God, and God put him in a position of power in Egypt and through that position he was able to be reconciled to his family and his family then moved from Canaan to Egypt to be with him okay so that's where we're at when we come into Exodus all right and so um, the first six verses of Exodus 1 are genealogy and so we're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 1 verse 6 so it says Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and multiplied exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. Next slide. Oh, thank you. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities of Patam and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field and all the labors which they rigorously imposed on them. And so you have this scene, right? Jacob, whose name had been changed Israel, is moving his entire tribe, that 70 people with all their livestock, all their belongings, everything that they've ever acquired in life, and they move to Egypt. And as time goes on, they are just spreading out. And their numbers are growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And so Pharaoh in Egypt, a new Pharaoh, has fear and anxiety of his own. Because he notices this population of people growing. And what is he going to do? How is he going to keep his kingdom safe? And so I... uh, Forgive me, I forgot to add it to the PowerPoint, but I'm going to summarize the rest of chapter 1 for you. So Pharaoh has a three-layer system. That first layer is that he's going to make them slaves, right? And that's what we read here. And he makes life really hard for them, really bitter, thinking, well, that's going to stop them from having babies, right? Well, it didn't. And so then he has a second layer that we read later in Exodus 1 where he says, okay, I'm going to have the Hebrew midwives, when they go to help the women deliver, if it's a boy, she has been ordered to kill that boy. But if it's a girl, she'll be allowed to live. Thankfully, the Hebrew midwives didn't listen to Pharaoh. They chose to listen to God, which is a lesson in and of itself. And that layer didn't work. And God blessed them for their obedience to him. So the third and final layer that Pharaoh came to, when it didn't work with slavery, 
and it didn't work with the Hebrew midwives, is he commanded all of his people in Egypt. So any citizen of Egypt who saw a Hebrew newborn baby, and it was a boy, had the ability to throw them into the Nile. That's what the word tells us. And so here we are. And Moses' mom, her name's Jochebed. We learned that in Exodus chapter 6. She's pregnant with her third baby. And that's the scenario that she's pregnant in. She's a slave. She doesn't know if she's going to have a boy or a girl, but she knows if it's a boy, his life is in danger. And I can't imagine the fear that she must have had because of that. It's scary, and it's horrific, and it's probably literally the worst-case scenario to have a baby in. Next slide, please. And so through this, we learn that God is sovereign in his timing. Okay? God doesn't, like, accidentally place us in the wrong decade or year or era of time. He has a specific purpose for you and for our children of why they have been born here. Even if it was inconvenient to have a baby, even if it didn't make sense to have a baby, I'm sure Jacobed was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Right now, I'm going to have a baby? This doesn't make any sense. This is the worst case scenario. Why? And it's not fair, right? I'm a slave. Are you kidding? Pharaoh wants to kill my child and you want me to have a baby right now. And God's sovereign in his timing when you least expect it. You know, I love surprise stories when it comes to babies. I pray to God I don't ever have one, but I love them when I hear people say, I have a 17-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, and a 1-year-old. I'm like, oh, you got a surprise. I love those stories. Please, Jesus, no. Not for me. (laughs) Anybody have any surprises in here? One. We have one surprise. That was it. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, here's the thing, right? When I had been married for two years, I found out I was pregnant. And it was that, like, picture-perfect scenario, right? Like, I knew it. I was like, I know that I'm pregnant. I know I am, right? And I took a test, and sure enough, it was positive. And I called everybody. I called all my family. I'm texting all of my friends a bajillion pictures of pregnancy tests that they don't ever want to see, right? Um, And I'm posting it on Facebook because Facebook is like your life, so everybody has to know. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a mom. And it was the longest four weeks of my life to wait to go to the doctor because I was so excited to be on this journey of motherhood. And four weeks later, I was staring at an ultrasound screen that had nothing on it. No heartbeat, no baby, nothing. And I remember just feeling so devastated. And I kept asking myself, why? Why isn't there anything there? And so I miscarried that pregnancy, and about a month later, I found out I was pregnant again. And I totally was, what's going on? And I didn't trust my body. I didn't trust the doctors. And I really, honestly, if I'm honest with you, I had a lot of mistrust in God, going, am I going to keep this baby too? Or is it going to 
not stick around. Um, and that pregnancy was really rough for me. We ended up having to have a procedure done so that I wouldn't miscarry. And then in the pregnancy, we found out that Rocco had a hole in his heart and he had a defect in the artery in his neck. And so the entire pregnancy, I just was so in this place of just fear and what is going to happen to this baby boy. And on June 9th, 2012, two days after my birthday, I gave birth to a perfectly healthy little boy with no issues. And I remember, yes, um, and I remember realizing after I gave birth that if I had stayed pregnant with that first pregnancy that I wouldn't have Rocco. And it was this weird conundrum in my mind of timing. Like, you took this pregnancy baby, and then you gave me another one, and what would life have been like with that baby, and what would life be without Rocco? And it was this weird place to be. And I just had to come to a place of God saying, Megan, I'm sovereign, and I have a plan for Rocco. And he is here for a specific purpose. And so I want to encourage you that wherever you're at in your parenting journey, maybe you're an empty nester and all your kids are gone. And maybe you're still waiting for that baby to come. Maybe you've never had a baby and you so wanted one. Maybe you have a prodigal son or daughter that's just gone and you want to do everything you can to bring them back home. Or maybe it's the horrible situation that your son or daughter has gone home to be with the Lord and a piece of you has died with them. I want to encourage you that God is sovereign in his timing. He knows what he's doing. We have a choice when it comes to being a parent. We can take these questions that come up, that swirl around in our head like a tornado and just whip us around and it makes us anxious and fearful and depressed and full of bitterness and confusion and it leads us away from God, we can allow that to happen or we can enter the throne room and take our questions to him and say, why? What are you doing? Please tell me so I can partner on this journey, so I can understand your timing. God doesn't have to answer you, but in my experience, he will let me know what I need to know. And he will be faithful to answer those questions in accordance to what I need to know. All right, so we're going to jump ahead to the next slide, and we're going to continue with Jacobed's story. So we're now in Exodus 2. We're going to start in verse 1. And so it tells us, Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and, ha- and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. And that just tells me we don't know a lot about Jochebed. There's very little information in the word about her. But that verse right there tells me that she truly had a mama's heart. Right? Do you remember the first time that you saw a baby, whether it be yours or a friend's or a family member's? But the first time you saw a little tiny human being, something stirs inside of us, right? 
It's like, wow, we stand in awe of this little person. And that's exactly what happened with Jacobet. She saw her baby, and it was her third baby. And she saw how beautiful he was. And that word for beautiful that's used is actually the Hebrew word for good. And it's the same good that God uses when he describes his creation in Genesis. Jacobed saw that God's creation in the form of her son was beautiful and good. And so we, the lesson I get from that, next slide please, is that God is sovereign in his good creation. Children are a gift from God. We learn that in Psalm 127, 3 through 5. And I personally have learned to trust God's design for kids. This is my beautiful daughter, Zia. And when Zia was born, I was in a gigantic transition in my life. I had been working for the past four years in a high, highly stressful position. So I had left that job. I had taken Rocco out of daycare. Christmas happened, and I had a newborn baby all within three weeks. I'm totally crazy, and I will never do that again. (laughs) But when she came, she was a different baby than Rocco. She was healthy. She was beautiful. There was nothing wrong with her. She just wanted to be close to me. She wanted to nurse all the time. She wanted to be with me. She wouldn't sleep unless she was close to me. And I hated that. I wanted to be able to lay her down and let her sleep on her own. I wanted her to stop nursing so I could make dinner and clean the house and play with Rocco. And I just wanted her to be a completely different person. And I became so frustrated and angry at this little human being who was crying for like things like, I don't know, she's hungry and she can't get her own food. She needs to be changed, you know, stuff that I'm supposed to be doing. But I was so upset at her. And I just wanted her to be different. And then I, I was praying for her to be different. <laughs> I was wishing for her to be different. I was reading all of these books to try to make her different and fit into a box that I felt would make my life easier and convenient. But the reality is is that God has designed Zia specifically. And through a change in my mind, as God has spoken gently and sometimes with the figurative two-by-four, I've learned to appreciate my daughter for who she is. And I've started asking God, how can I be the best mom for Zia? What does she need from me right now? Instead of, please make Zia different. Please change her. And God showed that to me through Proverbs 22, 6, where it tells us, train up a child in the way that he should go and he will not depart from it. And that's a beautiful verse, and it's a popular verse, and it's always referred to parenting. But the context of that verse is, how are you going to help your child flourish in the way that they have been designed to do? What is their bent? How has God knit them together specifically with a purpose? And I want to encourage you this morning that no matter what, no matter what type of personality traits your children or people in your office 
or people that you encounter anywhere have, no matter disabilities, for those of us that have children or people in our lives with disabilities, God didn't mess up. God didn't look away from the pot and it overflowed and he said, whoops, it's not what happened. There's a plan and there's a purpose in that. If there's difficulties and challenges, God has a plan and a purpose in the way that he has knit your children and the people of this earth together. And we have to trust that despite our lack of understanding what the fulfillment of that looks like. All I know right now is that my little three-year-old daughter, for her being a high-maintenance little girl, all I know is that she needs her mama. And she needs me to support her and be there for her. So we need to look at children, no matter their age, no matter how they are, no matter where we're at in life with them, and therefore look at people that they are good in the sight of God, and that they always have been and that they always will be. Next slide, please. We are going to continue in Exodus 2, uh, verse 3. But when she, Jochebed, could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. And then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And I don't want you to brush by this as, oh, well, we know at the end of the story. I want you to think for a minute, what did Jochebed do? She had to go get a basket. She had to prepare that basket and cover it with tar and pitch. And at one point, she had to come to the point of, I'm taking my baby boy down to the Nile River, and I'm going to put that basket in the water. And at some point, I'm going to lay that baby boy in it. And I'm going to walk away. And I'm so certain that that was probably the most difficult thing that she ever had to do. I don't know if she put the basket in the water and tested it to make sure that it floated And once it did, I don't know if she held on to her baby boy in the longest, tightest hug that she had ever given him. I don't know what that scene looked like, but at some point she laid that baby boy in that basket and she left. And so here's the thing. Next slide, please. God is sovereign in our surrender. He is sovereign when you don't want to let go of that little being, whether they're three months old or an 18-year-old or 35-year-old or however old they are. He is sovereign in your surrender when it hurts. And when it's the hardest thing that you will ever have to do, he is sovereign in it. We, um, I get scared sometimes. I'm a substance abuse counselor, and I'm working in the jails right now. And so I'm talking to a lot of young people that are in the jails. And I get really scared because when I hear their stories, I sometimes think, what if this is going to be one of my kids in 10, 15 years? When I hear the news, I get scared about the things that are happening in our country and in our world. 
But the reality is, is that I have a very short amount of time with my kids because they are arrows. And at one day, I'm going to have to release that bow and let them fly towards the target that God intended for them. And so what am I going to do with that time that I have? We recently went camping at the beach, and for any of you who know my son Rocco, he's a charmer and a people person, and he's very adventurous, and he just loves talking to people. And there were several instances where he would be gone from the camp, and it's like our tent, a little bit of sand, in the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> so I'm like, worst case scenario when I can't find him. Like, he went to the beach, and the tide's coming in, and I don't know where he is. Or maybe he took a walk down the road and something happened on the road. But every single time, I would just find him in somebody else's campsite, usually getting food from somebody, acting like we never feed the boy. Um, And I just wanted to take him and tie him into our tent, like hog tie him and throw him in there and keep him in there for our entire camping trip. And then I wanted to take this hogtied boy, move him from the tent into the car, and not let him do anything. I wanted to take his shoulders and shake him and tell him about all of the horrible things that could happen and why he needs to be careful and why he has to stay right here and always in my sight. But in those moments of panic and fear and anxiety when I was praying, God, please let him be okay, God reminded me, How have I made Rocco? I've made him to love people and interacting with people. I've made him to be adventurous. And how are you going to be a good steward of that, Megan? Are you going to stifle it? Are you going to crush his spirit by trying to control everything that he does? Or are you going to consistently enforce boundaries, but also give him the freedom within those boundaries to be who I'm creating him to be. And it made me think the latter sounds exactly like what God does with me. Next slide, please. Returning to our story, uh, Exodus 2, verses 4 through 5. So Moses' sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. So I want you to remember that anybody in Egypt had the authority to kill a Hebrew baby boy. And so you have Pharaoh's daughter and her maidens walking along the river And they're the ones who find the basket. Next slide, please. When she, the princess, opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And this is where Jochebed's faith is truly alive and active, and God's sovereignty is starting to play out in a beautiful way. Because I don't think, in whatever her plan was to hopefully take care of her baby in that basket in the Nile, I don't think she thought that the princess would find her baby. Next slide, please. 
Exodus 2, verse 7 through 8. Then her sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And I just imagine this beautiful, tan, brown-haired girl with dirty feet running through the slave quarters as fast as she can, kicking up dirt, running into people by accident, maybe knocking stuff over, but she is running. And she bursts through that door, and I don't know how she found her mom. Maybe her mom was slumped in a corner, sobbing, thinking about her baby and if she was ever going to see him again. Or maybe she was quietly trying to do chores around the house and weeping quietly to herself as her body started to hurt from needing to nurse the baby that was no longer there. I don't know, but I just imagine her busting through that door and go, Mama, you're never going to believe what happened. Next slide, please. So Jacobed and Miriam go, and the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And so here's Jacobed coming and seeing the princess holding her son. Remember, this princess is the daughter of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is the one who said Moses was supposed to die. And the princess hands her her baby boy back. And so the Nile that was meant for death for Moses actually brings life. And through that, it brings life to the entire Hebrew race. I am certain that that nursing session between Jacobet and Moses was one of the most sweetest and special moments of Jacobet's life and of her faith. Next slide, please. So to remind you that God is sovereign in his timing, he is sovereign in his good creation, and he is sovereign in our surrender. What does that look like in your life? What does that look like in your parenting journey? We have the perfect example of an excellent father and what God has done for us. Because when we think about what God has done for us, he figuratively laid that baby in the manger and he let go. And when he let go, that meant death for him but it meant life for us. And so God is the ultimate good father, and he is perfect in his sovereignty and his decision because through his timing and through his creation and through our surrender, we are able to be reunited with him and have a relationship with him. And so this morning we're going to celebrate communion. If the worship team could come back up, please. Um, and I just encourage you 
that during this time of communion, to take a couple moments to reflect on the sovereignty of God in your life and in your parenting journey. Have you trusted God as a parent? Have you trusted God with your children? Have you trusted him in the decision of wherever you're at in your parenting journey? And are you going to trust him with all of the people that you interact? Because the majority of your children's life, they're going to be adults. And you're working with all sorts of people and encountering all sorts of people in this world that were once children. You can go ahead and pass the elements.